everyone, and welcome to Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, I'm really glad you have joined us. We are in full swing with the WDET Book Club, and we've spent the summer delving into this year's pick, Invisible Man by Ralph Ellison. We've been talking with authors and experts and, of course, with you about what the novel means in the context of our world and the discussions that we are having today. You can tune in to our book club discussions right here on the program. You can do it online and at our Facebook group called the WDET Book Club. A lot of people have already started reading Invisible Man, Ralph Ellison's award-winning 1952 novel, and it's considered one of the formative works of the 20th century. It's noteworthy for Ellison's surrealist approach to storytelling and for the book's really candid discussions of race and identity in American society. Ellison's interrogation of power, of systemic racism, and inequality has never felt more urgent or pertinent than it does right now. Today, we're going to talk with someone who has thought a lot about inequality as it pertains to health outcomes and to environmental racism. Harriet A. Washington is a medical ethicist and an award-winning author. Her 2019 book, A Terrible Thing to Waste, Environmental Racism and Its Assault on the American Mind, takes a closer look at toxic exposure brain development, and racial disparities. Harriet Washington, welcome to Detroit Today. Thank you, Stephen. I am so pleased to be here. Yes, really great to have you with us. So let's start with that term, environmental racism. It's a term that I think has gained a lot of traction in recent years, but there are probably a lot of people who really still don't exactly understand what it means. So I would love to have you spend just a little bit of time talking about what environmental racism is. I think that the simplest and clearest definition is actually the most useful. It's simply the disproportionate exposure of people of color to noxious environmental um, agents, everything from air pollution and the uh, chemicals, particulate matter, carbon that it holds, to heavy metals like mercury, arsenic, and of course, lead, uh, which has been very publicly um, uh, showcased in Flint and in Detroit. Mm -hmm. And aside from that, there are hundreds, literally hundreds of industrial chemicals, including that have not been adequately tested, or in some cases not tested at all, before humans were exposed to them. And you add to that things like pathogens, uh, where we're experiencing a lot of novel pathogens in this country, things that we think of pathogens in the developing world, tropical world. But the reality is it's climate that unites them. And the U.S. has an unusually warm climate for a developed nation. Mm. And so all these things can cause disease. Some cause disease directly because they're pathogens or because they harm the systems, but they others cause it indirectly by uh, compromising mental development in the fetus. So that a fetus exposed to some of these things will have brains that are suddenly and sometimes not so suddenly deranged, grow up to be adolescents with problems and adults with severe limitations. So disproportionate exposure to these things 
is racial. It, fall, it falls neatly along racial front lines. And I think that's probably the more confusing aspect to some people, because um, which I don't blame them, because a lot of the news media, even some of the medical media, will often cast these risks as socioeconomic, hmm. implying that they're, they uh, fall along, along economic fault lines. But that's not so. Poverty is a risk factor. Race is a much, much stronger one. Hmm. So one of the things that I think is really interesting about the concept of environmental racism, about the reality of environmental racism, is something that you were just getting to there in your comments, which is the disbelief that surrounds it. That I I feel like even as people come to understand more what it is, you do have a lot of people kind of pushing back and saying, well, this isn't actually an example of racism. It's an outgrowth of the disparities that we see that are that fall along socioeconomic lines here in in America. Uh, what is it about environmental racism that shows us specifically that race is the aggravator? Race is the determining factor in so many of these consequences. The data show us. Um, I, the, the clearest example that I usually use is that if you look at people who have very heavy exposures to environmental to- toxicants, you find that African-Americans who are solidly middle class with an income of fifty to 60000 a year have much greater exposure than extremely poor white Americans, profoundly poor Americans, who only earn $10,000 a year. That's extremely low, mm-hmm. but they have less exposure to environmental hazards. So clearly, again, it's not that poverty isn't a risk factor, but race is such a large risk factor that it completely overshadows it. It's much greater. It's much more significant. These are race-driven. There's also a semantic issue here because some definitions, and there are several, of socioeconomic also include race. It's assume race. So anywhere you look at it, we're looking at race. There's a reluctance to face the fact that we're looking at uh, racial fault lines has a lot to do with reluctance to face the fact of racism at all in American life. It's frankly a difficult thing to admit that your country has these ugly disparities mm-hmm. so that people on um, people's lives, health, and their life expectancy are striated by race. That's a hard thing to admit, but it's reality, and we have to face it if we want to change it. Mm-hmm. What about the question or the concept of intentionality around environmental racism? It's one of the things that I think also is very difficult for Americans to get their minds around the idea that so much of systemic inequality is not necessarily about intentional acts or things that people know will have racist consequences, but they are part of systems that were built on the idea of racism and inequality, and therefore their consequences play out in that way. Can you talk about the relationship to intentionality and kind of purposeful action and environmental racism? Actually, it doesn't matter at all. Mm. Why is intentionality important? Is it important to the people whose children are killed, who die early or die in the womb? Is it important to the people who are permanently, um, have their cognitive powers dampened by exposure, doesn't matter to the victims at all. Intentionality only matters to the perpetrators. Mm. Again, I think that same discomfort. No one wants to admit that do, um, 
choices their group has made, the dominant group has made, people are consigned to a life of being poisoned. It's much easier to excuse oneself to use exculpatory strategies by saying that, well, no one intended this, but it doesn't matter whether it was intended or not. And the reason why, I frankly, I'm going to be honest and say I bristle a bit when I hear that, Mm. and here's why. The courts have used intentionality to avoid addressing the issue. They have. Um, Robert Bullard, who is a pioneer in this, he was working, collecting data, and um, with along his wife, um, making legal challenges to places like Houston about their um, pockets of people of color who were unduly exposed to environmental toxins. Very early on, decades ago, he was doing that. His initial efforts were stymied because the courts determined that, yes, People of color were being poisoned disproportionately, but he had to prove not only that, they had to, they were charged with proving it was intended. Mm-hmm. Why? Why why you why would you have to prove that? Right. And that has been echoed by courts since then. Um, after North Carolina has been fighting its environmental exposures since nineteen eighty two. And the courts told it the same thing. You have to prove the intent of government to poison you. That should not be a hurdle that um, people who are victims should have to surmount. Yeah. It's about the consequences, and that's where the focus... Right. So the, when you talk about intentionality, basically, you know, you you have to recognize that you're considering the, um, the interest and the feelings of the dominant group. We're talking about biopower, unfortunately. We're talking about dominant group, and you're dismissing damage, the real damage is done to others. So you have to decide what is more important to you. Hmm. I'm talking with Harriet Washington, the author of A Terrible Thing to Waste. Uh, We're talking about environmental racism and the ways in which it affects the lives of black and brown people here in the United States. So we're talking about this as part of our WDET book club this summer, where we are reading Invisible Man by Ralph Ellison. Uh, we would love to hear from you during this segment as well. How worried are you about exposure to environmental hazards? Do you live in an area where pollution and exposure to toxic material is of particular concern. I think we can all think of places here in Metro Detroit or in the state of Michigan where those things are more prevalent uh, than others. Uh, What do you think about the idea of that being an example of environmental racism? What do you think needs to be done to address these racial disparities in environmental policy? As always, The number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put comments there. Or go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we'll try to work your comments into the conversation. Um, uh, Harriet, I'd also like to talk about the the sort of um, interconnectedness of this brand of racism and systemic inequality to other kinds of racism and systemic inequality. And in particular, I think housing discrimination has an incredible overlap with environmental racism and the consequences that black and brown people suffer as a result. That's true, absolutely. And housing discrimination is interesting in that Many people tend to think that it's a problem of the past. It's not so. It was certainly much more dramatic in the past and much more, um, it was encoded into law. 
in large swathes of the country, we had um, a law uh, establishing uh, American apartheid, segregation, mm-hmm. uh, delineating where you couldn't couldn't live. Before then, from the period of enslavement, you know, through the post-enslavement period, um, you had um, designation of areas where African Americans were to live and whites lived. Whites had African Americans in general living as far from them as possible for a variety of reasons. Uh, they, African Americans were consigned to areas that were really unhealthy, um, swampy, near where animals um, were kept, so they were exposed to the pathogens and the fecal manner of animals. Um, very unhealthy areas far from white. That continued under um, segregation, and that continued after segregation. After de jure segregation ended, very little ended in this country. In fact, I spoke to um, an expert two years ago who shocked me, who um, at the Harvard School of Public Health, David Williams pointed out that segregation, housing segregation and residential segregation is so entrenched in this country, if we were to achieve ra- racial parity, mm-hmm. 66% of African Americans would have to move somewhere to move, else. Right, yes. <laughs> there are still areas, Alabama stands out, as it often does with negative things. Um, <laughs> Alabama stands out as a, um, a state where segregation is still on the books. It's a law still on the books that was never reneged. Um, you will still find laws stipulating um, that in venues like schools, Whites and African Americans need to be separated, and indeed they are. If you look at the data, you find um, I think there has been the first integrated school in Alabama opened in 2018. Wow! So, in addition to the law, there has been economic custom. Um, many when we found that urban housing that was older was not only crumbling filled with um, vermin and pathogens, but also uh, inundated with lead, lead in the pipes, lead in the interior wall paint, lead dust. That was around the time in 71, um, between the 16 and 17, where there's a lot of white flight going to the suburbs. Of course, African-Americans and Hispanic-Americans could not follow them to the suburbs because they were all these con- uh, contractual um, notations in housing contracts. I mean, when you signed a lease, you had to promise not to sell to a black person. Right. You had to promise not to rent to a black person. And, you know, these kind of codicils are not, um, they still exist now. So we have certain types of segregation that are perfectly legal. In housing, even in places like New York City where I live, um, in housing there are um, boards that are permitted to discriminate. No one um, questions their authority in terms of deciding who can and who cannot move into um, a one of these, um, you know, desirable housing situations, mm-hmm. you know, high rise, et cetera. Mm-hmm. So segregation is still with us. And redlining has been separating people of color from home ownership for a very long time and still does. Even the touted GI Bill. When we, um, when we came back from Germany to the U.S., my father had been stationed in, in southern Germany. Mm-hmm. Um, my father had left the Army, was very excited about the GI Bill buying a house in the suburbs, he was never able to buy one. Yes. No yeah. one would sell a house to him. All his buddies from the army who were, who were white ended up out in the suburbs. We had to live in the city. Yeah. So um, this I, is still- I tell this story uh, all the time about my own father who mm-hmm. grew up in Mississippi, uh, in, born in the 30s in Mississippi and grew up to join the Air Force during the Korean War, served in the Air Force during the Korean War, 
comes home to Mississippi, where, of course, Jim Crow is still in place. But even more importantly, the GI Bill that is eventually extended to all Korean War vets does not benefit African-Americans because of housing discrimination, because of college admittance kinds of uh, discrimination. I mean, that's a very, very common story for African-Americans. And I don't know that that lots of other people really understand that or, or, or believe that that's, that that's true. Exactly. Exactly. So housing barriers, um, which were very written into the law and openly accepted for a very long time, still linger in a more shadowy existence. Mm-hmm. Uh, again, 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones to join the conversation. Let's go to Stan in Royal Oak. Stan. Hello. Welcome to the show. Yeah, go ahead. Hi. Um, when your guest mentioned intentionality, I think I'm a natural contrarian, so I wanted to argue a bit about the point. But when I thought about it, um, and I'm not a lawyer, at least in civil law, it doesn't seem that intentionality uh, comes to bear on cases. For example, um, people who are harmed by pharmaceuticals or people harmed in an auto accident or you know, people harmed on someone's property. Um, intentionality doesn't seem to figure into, or medical malpractice is, a, is an excellent example. Intentionality doesn't seem to figure into uh, whether or not um, the uh, person responsible has to pay damages. So it's it's very frustrating that um, intentionality would rule over whether or not people are awarded damages in uh, environmental suits. Hmm. And I can listen for whatever comments yeah. um, on yeah. the radio. Stan, thank I, you. Stan, I appreciate the call and the and the thoughts there. Uh, Harry Washington, as, as he points out, it's intentionality doesn't attend every legal analysis, uh, but the fact that it does attend uh, the, the kinds of cases where you're talking about environmental racism is, is again, a, a sign of the way in which uh, the, the systems that we live in in this country make it more difficult to directly address racism or directly uh, push back against it to, to come up with solutions. Unfortunately, um, law is sometimes a little more than a tool in the racist toolbox. Mm. And um, for your caller, if you're more interested in this, there are details in Robert Bullard's work because his wife is the lawyer with whom he worked to try to combat some of these things. So um, their work in Houston, I think, was particularly illuminated. And also, looking up after North Carolina is Mm. also fascinating. Because, as I said, they have been fighting for decades mm. to get redressed. And the courts use this illegal um, um, claim against them. You know, this um, repeated demand to prove the intentionality is a, seems to be a you know, fixture of envi- response to environmental challenges. So uh, for someone who knows something about the law who is interested in I think that could be a really fascinating thing to look at. And I would start with Bullard's work. Mm. Okay, we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to continue this conversation with Harriet Washington and with you. 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. Mike in Gross Point, Steve in Waterford. We'll get to you next as well. We'll also hear from some folks on Twitter. Stay with us for more Detroit Today. 
Listening to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. My guest is Harriet Washington, author of A Terrible Thing to Waste, a book about environmental racism published in 2019. We have her here today as part of our WDET book club discussions, where we have been reading Invisible Man by Ralph Ellison this summer and talking about the themes in that book that are still with us in modern America. Think of all the discussions that we're having right now about systemic inequality and police brutality uh, and how vividly the story that uh, Ralph Ellison tells in 1952 really reflects those things today. We also want to hear from you about environmental racism. Uh, is that something that you are worried about? Is that something that you witness in the neighborhood where you live? Uh, do you think there needs to be more regulation, for instance, on pollution to prevent the consequences of this kind of environmental racism? And what do you think needs to be done? Uh, in a more general sense, to sort of make things a little fairer, a little more equal in our society. As always, the number on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Facebook and Twitter and put comments there. We'll try to work you into the conversation. Before we get back to listeners, uh, Harriet Washington, I'd love to talk about lead exposure, which is another issue that you address in a lot of detail in your book. Uh, Flint, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I had a ahead. bit of a click with my phone. Can you repeat that? Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, I, I wanted to talk about lead exposure, which yes. is another issue that you address in a lot of detail in your book. Uh, Flint, Michigan is now, of course, the highest profile narrative, I think, uh, in, in American history around the idea of lead exposure and the the problems with lead exposure. But you also point to Detroit's problem of lead paint in many of the city's homes. Talk about how, how uh, the rate of exposure in Detroit and the Flint region compare to other parts of the country. Well, we have fallen into the habit of this country in pointing out the hot spot du jour. You know, um, Pittsburgh has got a great deal of... Um, lead painting its water and paint and habitations, and then we point to the next city. In the past, we focused on Baltimore, mm -hmm. which also has a serious problem, yes. and New York City. But I don't see it that way. It's, the, it's America that has a serious lead poisoning problem, not any particular city, because we have to remember that there are many municipalities and many areas where people are um, being exposed to high levels of lead poisoning and we simply don't know it yet. You know, for whatever reason, it hasn't been measured. Don't forget that the people of Flint were lied to initially and told they had no problem when they began complaining about water that didn't taste right and didn't look right. So, frankly, it's an American problem. And um, I've read about it enough that I don't really see the utility sometimes in carving it up into different municipalities mm. because it is an American problem. I think it's something that we really need to, it'll be more efficiently faced as such. Mm. So um, I, That's that an interesting way to look at it, and you're right. We don't tend to think of it 
in that broader kind of meta sense, we we look at each individual kind of flare up uh, of this and and respond to it. And and as you point out in the book, the consequences of this in in terms of brain development are so serious that um, that that it almost calls on us to to have a more serious and more comprehensive response. Yes, and I think it's really important to confront industry in a way that has not been confronted. Um, unfortunately, this poisoning has been allowed to proceed when government has failed to rein in industry. Something as basic and yet as critical as knowing which industrial chemicals are causing serious hazards. We don't even know that because often the tests that are required are insufficient to see things that are not obvious. Um, it's obvious if a certain industrial chemical causes, um, well, sometimes, causes problems like lung disease or cancers. These are things that one can see. These are things that are sometimes difficult to tie to the exposure, but it can be done more easily than tying things like cognitive problems. When you have generations of children in certain areas, um, being prone to behavioral problems, lack of attention, inability to read, inability to uh, pursue basic neurological functions as a result of exposure that they had 15 or 16 years earlier in utero, it can be very hard to track what, you know, what is causing it. So um, I think one of the things that we don't do well and we need to do well is confronting industry, establishing real standards that will really protect people and monitoring them and making sure they measure up. Unfortunately, our EPA has gone in the opposite direction under President Trump. Mm -hmm. It has decided to roll back protections and to cease enforcing um, the protections that exist adequately. For example, uh, about a year ago, the EPA ceased all um, surprise inspections. So now when there's an inspection, they know the EPA or inspectors are coming. Obviously, that's going to be much less effective than a surprise infection. And I could talk all day about that, which I won't. But, you know, there's a huge catalog of dereliction of duty, in my opinion, on the part of the government. So that's, that needs to be addressed, and I think it should be addressed on a nationwide basis. Because the story is really familiar, whether I'm talking to people in Flint, whether I'm talking to people in Baltimore, the same dereliction of duty, the same lies from public health establishments that should be you know, advocating for people, um, the same pattern keeps emerging of, you know, bad behavior mm-hmm. and it needs to be addressed. Mm-hmm. Uh, again, 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. Let's go to Steve in Waterford. Steve, welcome to the show. Yes, uh, thank you very much. Um, I just wanted to point out that uh, the, the lack of knowledge about the toxicities of a lot of the environmental poisons uh, is historical. And uh, when I was a child growing up, uh, some 60 years ago, uh, we, we used to go out and play in the DDT clouds when they would spray for mm-hmm. uh, mosquitoes. Hmm. And my grandfather was a, a house painter. He painted with lead paint. He wound up with heavy metal poisoning. Mm-hmm. Um, we, he used to take us to, to paint his boat with, the, with the lead paint and uh, wash our hands of benzene. Wow. So, oh my goodness! Uh, I'm, not, wow. I'm not disputing that this doesn't. Uh, I shuddered when you uh, said that. <laughs> um, and 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 certainly, I would think that uh, what the Snyder administration did to Flint in, in the in the water, refusing to use the uh, chemicals to uh-huh. um, treat the water that was 
what's uh, being brought in was uh, a criminal, right? And uh, deliberate. Yeah. So, uh, Steve, I, I really appreciate the historical perspective uh, that, that you're adding to the to the conversation there, um, uh, Harriet Washington. This idea of the long term difficulty that we've had coming to terms with how to deal with dangerous chemicals and things like that is is a bigger narrative than just the racism that makes that worse for black and brown people. And I think that's that's part of Steve's point. Well, actually, I can't agree completely. I'm going to delineate a lot of the relevant history and the terrible things we've faced. But I think it's important to understand that although these poisons, these toxic exposures have the same effect on everybody, right? If you're exposed, but who is exposed has changed over time. Right. And these exposures have largely disappeared. Some of them have largely disappeared from the white pool because they've had advantages and opportunities that black people and Hispanic people have not had. I think the most obvious salient example is moving to the suburbs, escaping urban housing mm-hmm. with lead line pipes, you know, lead covered walls, riddled with vermin, proximity, you know. They've escaped all that. They went to, like, pristine environment and were able to, and that's why we saw the numbers of um, things like lead poisoning in children fall precipitously in whites, but not in African Americans. So if you look at history comprehensively, you see these kind of patterns. You see lead poisoning go up when they permit TEL, tetraethyl lead, into gas, Mm -hmm. and then fall again when it's outlawed. You see... You know, you can see it go up with the use of interior lead paint and fall again when that's largely outlawed. Well, not completely outlawed, but largely constrained. So, you know, looking at history is important, but you have to look at history comprehensively and try to detect the patterns. Uh, again, 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. Mike in Gross Point, you're up next. Hi. Hi, Mike. Stephen, thanks for taking the call. Uh, always interesting show. Harriet, thanks for your work. I have a real problem with the word environmental or the concept environmental racism. I understand racism and I understand environment. Let's say River Rouge and uh, and Ecorse, right down across from the steel mill. My brother lived there and it was an awful neighborhood. The pollution that was coming off the steel mill, every day there'd be a layer of black soot that was on the car. His kids have asthma and grew up in that environment, and I'm sure that had something to do with it. But it wasn't a black or white thing. It was an economics thing. Hmm. You can only afford to live where you can afford to live, and where there's supply and demand, if there's a crappy neighborhood where nobody wants to live, the prices are a lot less expensive to live there, and therefore somebody chooses to live there. If they had more money, perhaps they could live somewhere else. So, so Mike, does your brother still live in that community? He, he earned money. They saved, and they moved down to Flat Rock. Yeah, and, and, and I, think uh, that's, I think that's part of the point that we're trying to get to here is that for white families and white people, that economic opportunity is driven by a form of privilege that that they are able to access that other people in this society, African-Americans, Latinos, uh, are not. And that's part of what makes it racism. Does that make sense, Mike? 
No, because to me, it's about people making choices. He stayed married to his wife, at least for a number of years. So they had two incomes working together to make the money so they could afford to get out. And you're saying black people don't don't stay married? Well, some do and some don't. I, I would yeah, take I a don't look know at that... these statistics. Uh, if I knew. It. Yeah, Mike, yeah, I, me. I appreciate the call, Mike. Uh, I want to give Harriet Washington a chance to, to respond here. Go ahead, Harriet. Mike, I appreciate your calling and saying that because I suspect your views represent a lot of people who feel the same way and who might not necessarily voice them. But I have to say that you're wrong, and let me explain why. It certainly reflects your own experiences, what you have seen, your anecdotal experiences. But reality is comprised of the entirety of people's experiences, people with whom you don't know, who you have not seen. And if you look at the data that show what actually happened, you see that the people who are most likely to be exposed are not people in your situation, but people who, rather than the kind of occupational hazards that you face, are facing exposures they cannot leave at 5 o'clock. Um, they live there. Their homes are imbued with it. Also, you use the language they choose where they choose to live. We just had a discussion about the constraints placed on where African Americans can li- live. African Americans do not live in tainted houses because they choose to. They live there because they're borrowed from better housing. And it's not economics, but it's racial strictures like segregation, like the covenants that prevent sale of homes to African-Americans, even things like job discrimination. It's really important to understand economics when you talk about it. And uh, if you look at education, which people invoke very often, well, if you have a better education, you get a better job. That's not true for African-Americans. African-American men who complete college earn less money on average than white men who complete high school. So we are talking about racial barriers. We're talking about a risk that is assorted by race and not economics. But to understand that, you have to look at the data. One can't just rely on one's own personal experience. It only gets you so far. It won't let you see the truth. Hmm. Uh, Again, Mike, I do appreciate uh, you listening and uh, the call and the thoughts. Uh, Let's go to Janissa in Dearborn. Janissa, welcome to the show. Hi. Hi. Yeah, I actually, uh, I think that that was super timely because I do this work every single day um, advocating for folks and with folks who live in environmental justice communities. Mm -hmm. Um, Dearborn just happens to be one of them and one of the worst. And the reality that folks are living in is very different than I think Mike from Gross Point's point of view can lend itself to. And I think that the reality of Black indigenous and people of color living and uh and dealing with multivariant vulnerabilities is very real um that the environmental exposure and health risks are very real um they're not just living with lead in older homes they're living with lead in the air too Mm -hmm. right Mm -hmm. um and they're dealing with the fact that corporations are allowed to (laughs) self-report they're allowed to self-report and influence the, the way that uh, they're actually regulated. Mm. So the, the disadvantage of living in an area that is being polluted and experiencing pollution in multiple forms and then also not having the agency to combat that is very real. And that is what environmental racism is. Mm. Uh, Janissa, I really appreciate 
the call uh, and your thoughts. Uh, Harriet Washington, I'll give you the last word before we have to break. I think it's really healthy um, that we're able to discuss um, the reality of environmental racism. I understand that for people who have been shielded from their whole life by their experiences, it can be a difficult concept to accept. So I really urge you to um, do what I do when I have a question about whether something is real or not. Educate oneself in a way that might be a little different than you've done in the past. Um, Find out the books of Robert Bullard, others who write about it, and see how the data present a different picture of America than perhaps the one that you see in your everyday life or I see in my everyday life. Um, The fact is we're a country that has a very wide range of experiences, a very wide range of exposures, and it can be difficult from our corner of the country to perceive what other people are experiencing. And so, and of course, because I like data, I like figures, I find them really illuminating, I also urge you to look at the figures, look at the data, the numbers that we've collected that show us a portrait of who's at risk. And I think you will better understand why I say this is a problem assailing people of color and one that we need to get a handle on now. Mm, Yes. Okay, Harriet Washington, author of the 2019 book, A Terrible Thing to Waste, Environmental Racism and Its Assault on the American Mind. It was really great to have you here with us on Detroit Today. Thank you very much. I've enjoyed every minute of it. Thank you. Yes. Okay, we're going to take another quick break. When we come back, we're going to take a look at how local environmental organizations are working on diversity, equity, and inclusion in a sector that has long been occupied by mostly white people. Stay with us on Detroit Today. Detroit Today. 